0: Hello and welcome back to the official SaaS to podcast with me, Harry Stebbings, at hstebbings on Snapchat. And you can follow the main man, Jason Lemkin, on Twitter at jasonlk. And if you've been listening to the show for a while, you'll recognize that we have not had a rockstar SaaS investor on the show for a while. Well, that all changes today, as I'm delighted to welcome Alex Rosen to the hot seat today. Now, Alex is a managing director with IDG Ventures, where he focuses on investments in cloud infrastructure, SaaS applications, ad tech, and consumer marketplaces. And Alex currently serves as board director at Chubby's, Crux, Mindmelt, Minted, Smartling, Tempered Networks, and Uplift. He also led IDG Ventures investments in multiple companies, including Appboy, Datanize, Indiegogo, Nuzzle, and many more incredible companies. And previously, he was a general partner at Sprout Group, where he was head of the internet and software group. I also do want to say a huge thanks to the team at Sapphire Ventures for the intro to Alex today, without which the show would not have been possible. However, before we dive into the show's today, Algolia is a robust search API that allows developers to integrate lightning-fast, typo-tolerant search into their sound- Product Out of the box, Algolia offers developers a powerful platform for building great search experiences. By owning the entire stack from engine to server, Algolia free up development teams to focus on adding intuitive search that delights users. This is perfect for existing search teams looking to spend less time on maintenance and infrastructure management and more time on user experience. For small SaaS teams, Algolia is a perfect investment on top of your existing stack that requires no specialist engineers. And you can learn more about how Algolia helps SaaS scale search because now sasta podcast listeners can get one month free at algolia.com forward slash sasta with the coupon code sasta podcast that's algolia.com forward slash sasta however enough from me so i'm now delighted to hand over to alex rosen managing director at idg ventures good that's perfect okay i think we're warmed up alex it's absolutely fantastic to have you on the show today huge thanks to jason lenkin for the intro but thank you so much for joining me today
1: alex It is my pleasure and I've been looking forward to this.
0: Now, I'd love to get started today by hearing a bit about you and how you made your first steps into the wonderful world of SaaS investing.
1: I'm going to take us a little bit back in time and maybe get a little personal, but the quick history is I fell in love with computers in 1981. My family came to the U.S. from the former Soviet Union. I saw a computer that I'm sure will make no sense to you. It was called a Commodore PET in a classroom of my high school, and I thought it was the coolest thing ever. So I learned how to code. I wrote a really shitty knockoff of a Space Invaders game. I got a job working for a local... Apple distributor, teaching programming to even younger kids so I can buy an Apple IIe at cost. And then I went to to MIT and I paid for a large part of the college by writing code. Got a degree in engineering, but then became interested in business. I got a second degree in economics, spent a couple of misguided years in investment banking, and quite randomly got a pre-MBA position at a venture capital firm. And I thought it was something that I was going to try out before going to business school and after business school when I'm going to go off and get a real job. And here we are more than 20 years later, I'm still looking for that real job.
0: I, I'm, I'm intrigued. When was the transition point for you mentally from realizing that this was more than a pre-MBA job to actually what you were really born to do?
1: You know, the being born to do part is a very good question. And I would say it was probably four or five years into it. What happened was I, and, and this touches on the SaaS, uh, you know, the SaaS part of it as well, the firm that I started working with is General Atlantic Partners, which at the time, was actually significantly smaller than it is now. And I was really focused on investing in software companies. So in 1993, I was learning how to work with two-tier client-server architecture software businesses, you know, on premise. As you know, the world of networking and LAN was beginning to take off. This is before the internet. What got me really excited about venture was around 95 when I was at Stanford Business School and was witnessing the birth of companies like Netscape and, and Yahoo. I mean, it really made me feel that year where I was fortunate enough to be going to school is a really remarkable place. And I decided to stay there. And I had actually had a couple of different job offers coming out of business school. My lowest paying one was to work for a venture capital firm. And I took that. And I would say a few years after that, it dawned upon me that this combination of the geek inside me love technology, love technology entrepreneurs, but also love the game of business and marrying those two. And and that part to me started really resonate with my personality. So I would say it's, you know, somewhere somewhere probably right before the bubble crashed in two thousand. <laughs>
0: Absolutely. But I, I do want to start today with with something that I've heard you say before, and it's when investing in early stage SaaS, metrics are basically irrelevant. So I'm I'm really intrigued as to what you mean by this in a in a world where traditionally SaaS metrics are often what people refer to as, you know, spreadsheet investing for SaaS investors.
1: Right. I know. It's quite an anathema to say that in early stage SaaS investing, metrics are relevant. And for a lot of folks who know me personally, who know me to be quite an analytical guy, they will think that I've completely gone off my rocker. (laughs) Let me be very clear sort of what I mean by that. So I'm an early stage investor. What I invested is in series A companies, and by that I mean true Series A companies, usually pre revenue or very, very early revenue. So, you know, I'll throw in a couple of examples now and later, but Crux was a company we invested in Series A that had one paying customer. Vitaball was another SaaS company we invested in that had that were pre revenue. And Smartling had literally twelve customers. So I can go and on through those examples, but the point is sort of my lens of looking at this world is looking at companies. Companies who either have some customer engagements and no revenue or very early customer engagements and sub-million dollars in revenue. At that point, if you look at the wonderful SaaS metrics that everybody talks about, whether it's CAC or LTV, they're irrelevant for making an investment decision. So let me, let me pick a couple. If you look at CAC, which is your cost to acquire a customer, what matters for an established company is how many dollars do I need to spend on sales and marketing in order to acquire a customer? Well, in an early stage SaaS company, you probably have one sales rep, maybe you have no sales rep, all the sales activity is done by the founders. How do you incorporate the cost of the founder time in calculated CAC? It's meaning if you look at lifetime value of a customer, well, the company's only been in business for a year. Your longest lasting customer, you know, your customer's only been around for a couple of months. How can you possibly know how many years that customer is going to stick around? You don't have a crystal ball. So, we can go on and on in those. So, you can churn, you know, churn rate. I mean, if you have monthly, subscri- you know, month-to-month customers, maybe you have some early, early indications of what churn would look like if you have a couple dozen customers who have monthly contracts. But in a lot of companies... Where we look at this, these are enterprise SaaS businesses that have year, sometimes multi year contracts. You're three months into a contract, you have no fucking clue whether that's going to churn or not.
0: Absolutely. How do entrepreneurs respond then when you uh, present this uh, thesis towards them and they come with all their CAC to LTV ratios and how their MR and bookings have gone up and to the right? What is the response?
1: Well, it depends on how good those metrics look. <laughs> in some cases, when the entrepreneur comes in and says, look at our amazing metrics, our CAC to LTV is 0.1 and this is just awesome. And I say, that's a very good, very early and likely irrelevant indication, but I'm excited that you're putting in the analytical infrastructure to be measuring your business because all these SaaS metrics do matter. They just don't matter when I'm making a Series A investment. They matter to you, the entrepreneur, frankly, a little bit more than to me, the Series A investor, in saying so, how do I know that my business is growing and it's growing in a way that is repeatable and is financeable by Series B by Series C investors, right? Because that is the point in which the SaaS metrics. Become really important when you go off to raise your you know, $10 million, $25 million, $50 million growth rounds, is be able to, to look at your core SaaS metrics, to look at you know, the magic ratio, to to look at your churn rate and say that look at the business we have built. And I try to work with you know, our entrepreneurs and our founders and helping them sort of craft that story and keep track of those metrics. Mm-hmm. I will say, if, if I may, what yeah. there is one metric that becomes relevant early on that I'm a particular particular fan of, and that is the value of prepaid contracts. And it is not a fraction, but is definitely something that you can track as a founder of a SaaS company very early on. And in several instances of companies we have backed, it's become an incredibly powerful lever early on in financing the company in a non-dilutive fashion, non-dilutive to real estate investors, but more important, non-dilutive to the founders. So if you can get your customers to finance your business by prepaying for the contracts up front, that is enormously powerful. And the sooner you can do that, the earlier you establish the pattern that you can actually get that done
0: okay well i'm super intrigued then with this lack of not regard but lack of uh, heightened interest for metrics at this early stage i have to ask then what really matters when early stage investing in SaaS? what do you deep dive on
1: yeah so the best analogy that i'll give an analogy that that i use internally is maslow's hierarchy of needs so maybe take you back a little bit to psych 101 but you have your physical needs your safety There is some social needs there is a steam there's a self-actualization. So I look at five things when I look at an early stage SaaS company. Frankly, it applies to most early stage companies. Uh, First and foremost, you have to look at the market opportunity. Is there a big and addressable market for something that you're building? Secondly, what does the product look like? Third, what is the technical differentiation or the technical moat to use the medieval analogy that you are creating? Moving up in the hierarchy. Market is nice. There's a product that you're going to address the market with, you know, some kind of differentiation. Why now? The interesting thing about the technology markets is that there have been hundreds of thousands of really smart entrepreneurs going after every little possible piece of the enterprise. Market for the last couple of decades. What has changed that has left this particular opportunity open right now? And the very top, and to me, the most important, is the team. And in terms of the team, I'll look at a few things. I'll look at the the tangibles, which is what is the relevant background. One of the interesting things about enterprise SaaS is that it is generally important to have a really good understanding of the customer problem and the group of customers who you're going after. There are some exceptions of course, but most of the great SaaS companies were not started by college freshmen, unlike a lot of really good consumer companies. So you look at the relevant relevant background. And then there's the intangible to me. And I think that to me, the kind of the most important intangible is to realize that to start an early stage company, to be a founder of an early stage company is really an unreasonable step. It is an excruciatingly difficult, challenging journey where the odds are stacked against you. So it takes a really special kind of individual in order to, to do that. And I'll look for the psychological profile if you will. I,
0: I, I wanna dig in so much on each of those though. So I do want to start with, as we said, the market. And we oft, often hear we need an attractive market size. And and that can often be quite challenging because often founders are told that they're being unrealistic with their markets. I know now as a investor myself I get rather annoyed when I see a trillion dollar market or a hundred billion dollar market. So is it so how can they founders, um, view market size and what is attractive and ensure that it's both focused and accurate, but also attractive? So, you know, we probably can spend 10 hours
1: going through this and going to specific examples. I will spare you that pain. I would say that as you look at the market, I would break it into sort of a couple of steps. So first, I think that you have to say, look, we are building a a product today that is going to address a market today. We're not going to stop at that. As we grow, we have grander ambitions and we will address other adjacent markets as we grow. To use an example crux which was a big data management platform started off initially solving the needs for the largest web publishers in helping them understand and monetize their data as the company grew it used its knowledge of data management to then sell to marketers a similar set of functionality that addressed the needs of the marketers that was a much bigger market if you looked at the series a deck that they showed us when they first invested that was absolutely their plan and it was actually a series of concentric circles They said hey Today, we're going after a market that looks like a billion-dollar market. Down the road, in the next you know, five-plus years, we're going after this multi-billion-dollar market, but we'll need to build out an additional functionality for that. So, have a roadmap. That incorporates that. I would say too, in terms of being realistic about the market, there is the there is some fairly difficult analysis that needs to be done, and this is where the knowledge of the market by the founder is actually very important. Which is to say, look, if I'm in the you know content delivery network and software business like Fastly, how many companies out there today use a CDN? How many companies don't use a CDN because it's either too expensive or it's too cumbersome? You You could actually come up with some numbers, but if you're just starting from a market where you, from a point of view where you're just learning about the market, this will be hard. So knowing about the market becomes important. Come up with a number of your total possible number of customers. You have to figure out how much that customer is willing to pay you, but then you also have to go through the exercise of saying, look, what are you looking for in the market is on an annual basis how much money is spent, and you're not going to get every single customer And every single potential customer to switch to you in, 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 you know, next year. So figure out the number of customers that you're likely to get on an annual basis and how much they're willing to pay you. And that is your Mm town.
0: So I'm intrigued with regards to the founding teams and the teams themselves. Often we see in SaaS brand names and logos feature heavily on the team pages of the deck. Does that work as a form of verification for you or do you dig much deeper?
1: So I would say the logos are actually not relevant at all. What is relevant in the background of the founders is what exactly did those companies do? What exactly was their role in that company? And what was their contribution to the success of the company? Is somebody was at Box as employee number 532 and had a relatively small role. They've gotten some benefit because they were around Aaron Levy and a bunch of other really smart early executives in that company, but they weren't there early on. If you were Tom Chavez, who started a company called Rapt that they sold to Microsoft, you need to understand what Rapt did and what were the different iterations that Rapt went through in order to get to the outcome that it got to and what Tom did at Microsoft and why that's relevant in starting Crux. If you're talking about Arthur Bergman, who started Fastly, he did not come out of... Any of the CDN companies, he was actually a customer of a CDN, and he knew firsthand the customer problems that CDNs introduced. So you absolutely have to go one or two levels deeper than that.
0: Uh, With regards to the founding team, what makes you nervous when viewing the founding team? Are there any red flags that can show up for you? That is a very,
1: very good question. I would say that there is a delicate balance between determination to succeed and blindness to the challenges ahead. And what makes me nervous is when I meet with the founding team, I see the determination and I don't see any element of... You know, there, this is going to be difficult. There are going to be these problems, and there are some areas over here we don't know yet.
0: No, I'm with you. I'm with you. In terms of not knowing yet, often one very hard element to, to really get to grips with is product market fit in startups at this stage. How do you evaluate product market fit, and what does that initial evidence look like to you?
1: So, product market fit is an incredibly important and also an incredibly difficult concept to quantify because there have been a number of attempts to say a company has product market fit when you're NPS score is above a certain number, and I think that's an interesting indication, but that's not it. I will actually give you an intangible analogy, and then I will try to get a little more tangible. But the intangible analogy, I would say product-market fit is when you have the effect of a bowling ball rolling down a hill. It's that kind of momentum in your business that just can't be stopped. And I think if you get 50 founders in a room and you ask them, do you know what I am talking about? You will have 50 people nodding their heads because this idea of we have momentum, we're signing up more customers this month that we did last month than the month before. Our sales cycle is getting shorter. Our customer profile is really consistent from one quarter to the next. I am able to recruit salespeople who are average salespeople and they're able to deliver their quota. So I would say, kind of picking up on that last point, I would say you have product market fit when you're able to get an average salesperson to sign up an average customer who looks like a bunch of your prior customers. And you can do that in an average amount of time.
0: Nice. I like that. Uh, that's, that's almost tangible. I'll take that as tangible. Uh, but I do want to dive into a quick fire round with you now. So I say a, I say a short statement and then you give me your thoughts. 60 seconds per one. How does that sound?
1: I think it's impossible for a venture capitalist, but I'll do my best.
0: It will be challenging, you're right. Uh, But (laughs) what does the future look like then for the consumerization of enterprise, the buzzword?
1: So I love consumerization of enterprise. I think you got to remember, consumerization of IT is a term. First got started 16 years ago. It really peaked about six years ago, and people have not talked about it much, which means now is a really interesting time. There's an expectation that enterprise software should look and feel like Netflix or Google Maps, that hasn't happened yet. What is starting to happen, and I think what you'll see in a lot of SaaS companies, is to have the self-service offerings. And by self-service offerings, I don't mean freemium models. I mean actual paid self-service versions of enterprise software that somebody can download and start using. That, to me, is a consumerization of software.
0: Does that not mean that you'll have much lower ACVs
1: on the whole? No, absolutely not. Sorry to be so direct about it. No, tell I mean me that why, even if you, I disagree. If you're sell- yeah, if you're selling a product with a Hundred thirty thousand dollar ACV. You are not going to sell that online with a credit card, and nor should you. But you should absolutely have some feature of that that a customer can pay five hundred dollars for download, start using, and say, "Wow." this actually exposes me to a bunch of other things that I can do here. That's what I mean by self-service serving, a subsection of the features yeah. that is able to let you run your analytics on a really small piece of the data and only from SQL databases, not terabytes of data on NoSQL data stores. Absolutely. So for right. instance.
0: variable pricing mechanisms allowing the AC yes. to get to yeah. okay, awesome. no that is, that is great. I like that. Uh, your favorite SaaS reading material, what are your must-reads when they come in?
1: So it's rare that you hear sort of one venture capitalist promote another, yet one with whom I have no personal relationship. But I think Davis Cox's blog for entrepreneurs is fantastic.
0: Mm-hmm. No, I agree. He was fantastic to have on the show too. But then, what do you know now that you wish you'd known at the beginning of your investing career?
1: Oh God, where do I start? This is probably the hardest one to do to do quickly. You and I started talking about that a little bit, you know, before the show. The feedback loop in venture capital is extremely slow. You work really hard to get to know an entrepreneur, invest in a company and it will take five to ten years before that company gets to liquidity you'll have some data points along the way in terms of growth and revenue evaluation but that's really hard and what i think what i've learned is that it's really important to have great people around you and it means both the mentors and i was very fortunate when i started in the venture business when i was at general atlantic that steve denning who at the time was the ceo of the business and bill ford who was a partner who i worked for it was now the CEO of the business ended up being some mentors for me. I've gotten some other mentors along the way, and and I've been fortunate to have great partners. Now I have an amazing wife. There are a lot of really good people around me who are entrepreneurs and venture capitalists. And now looking back, I realize sort of how important that is. It was not a proactive decision. And I wish I knew and was more aware of the importance of having great people, great mentors, great colleagues around you from the beginning, because they're the ones that can serve as the feedback loop and can help you get better and better and better what it is you're doing. Can I ask
0: you? And this is—I will keep this in the sixty-second round. But just as as someone looking to learn from great people, now in my new role, what's the best way to learn from great people around you? Is it actively asking questions? Is it observing and sitting back and listening? Is it by kind of going the extra mile and delivering on, you know, a a huge DD process? What what is it? Do you think that would best retains the knowledge base around you?
1: So the question is. How do you suck up the best yeah. How do you best suck up the knowledge of great of great people? So I would say first and foremost it is being aware that being surrounded by great people is really critical. And the interesting thing is I'm gonna go off a little bit on a philosophical tangent. So it's interesting if you look at sort of any of the Buddhist writings. And Buddha talks about, you know, the right paths or the middle path and talks about right speech and right intention and, you know, right meditation. Before all that comes right company. or I think it's called wise friendship. I'm, I'm, I'm not a Buddhist monk, even though I'm a fan of Buddhist um, writings. Fast forward to today, you know, one of the most impactful books of the last couple of years was this book called Grit by Angela Duckworth, who talks about how to, you know, both raise gritty children, but also how gritty people are successful. And one of the really interesting conclusions of this the book is that if you want to develop grit be part of a group of gritty people if you want to be able to rise at 4 a.m every morning to go to swim practice be around a group of people crazy enough to get up at 4 a.m to go swimming it's that much easier so to fast forward to technology or venture capital or building startups if you want to learn how to be a great entrepreneur surround yourself by great entrepreneurs if you want to be a great venture capitalist spend a bunch of time with great venture capitalists
0: no, absolutely. I, I think you're absolutely right. And that's why 700 shows in, I think I'm doing, I think I'm spending time with them. I, You are, you're, you're decades ahead of me. I I'm, mean, do, I'm you're doing exactly my 10,000 for- hours. I'm nearly there. <laughs>
1: Yeah, I was gonna say you're probably at ten thousand hours already, right? I mean give me mean, you work around the clock and you've gotten some amazing people to be in the show. I'm lucky to be in that company, but I think the people you're attracting is exactly, you know, the way you do that.
0: Well you're very you're very kind, but but I wanna I wanna move on to a final question in the quickfire fire round. And it's what would you like to change in the world of early stage SaaS?
1: So, what well, wouldn't I want to change in the, uh, the world of early-stage SaaS? Let me modify the question a tiny bit mm-hmm. and say what I would change in the world of early-stage SaaS is what I would probably change the, the world of early-stage venture capital. You and I talked a little bit earlier about Gil Panchina, who... I have tremendous respect for, who is now working with us. And he and I have been working on radically simplifying and creating a ton of flexibility on founder terms. And a lot of the in venture capital terms have been sacrosanct in venture capital for 40 years. And yet, vast majority of them are actually not that important, nor are they understood. People end up negotiating for weeks over a nine-page term sheet with terms that don't fucking matter. And we are working to create more transparency and I'll be honest we're not quite there yet although we got some interesting announcements coming up where we want to be really flexible so when we look at backing an entrepreneur we're not attached to any rigid set of terms and try to tailor each one of them to unique case i mean things like veto and change of control entrepreneurs are incredibly concerned about that term and we've never used it. so why do we have that in the term sheet you know we've done things like invest in uncapped notes we've you know, there are times when we've bought common stock as opposed to preferred stock. There are you know parado rights that sometimes matter, sometimes don't. So I think being really thoughtful, flexible, and transparent about the terms for the entrepreneur and sort of tailoring it for each specific case is something that we as an industry can do better and of so we as a fund are already doing what we can do, uh, but we're working to make it a lot better.
0: Absolutely, no, and I, I'm fully advocating your simplification of the, the nine-page term sheet, which is <laughs> vastly irrelevant in so many cases. Uh, but I do want to finish today by discussing, and this is out of the quickfire, so not to worry on the hurrying, but the scaling of SaaS startups and the metrics that begin to gain importance with scale. So I'm intrigued, what are those metrics? that begin to gain importance. And and then let's discuss them individually. But what are the main fundamentals?
1: So, as you talk about scaling, the metrics that I so irreverently said are irrelevant (laughs) become relevant. As you scale, churn rate becomes incredibly important. Lifetime value of a customer. Now... As you start calculating lifetime value of a customer, I I think you actually have to be more sophisticated and looking at LTV rather than just looking at the dollars that you're receiving. But let's come back to that. But I would say it's your cost to acquire a customer, it's lifetime value of a customer. You know, churn is a big component of that. It is the you know the magic number, which is the you know the ratio of sales and marketing dollars required to attract the. Marginal gain in revenue, and then, as I mentioned, I think it's super important to look at prepay. And ultimately, it is about growth. I mean, we're all growth investors. This is not, you know, we're not buyout guys. We're not looking to, to figure out how to squeeze out an incremental, you know, two percentage points of EBITDA, right? We we'll look for growth.
0: Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Uh, in in terms of you, you mentioned that CAC and LTV, I'm intrigued. What do you think then a good CAC to LTV ratio looks like? David Scott said four to five times uh, above the potential three that is often cited. What does it look like for you
1: so i would say that four to five times using with giant caveats so a You're using just the nominal dollars. In other words, you're assuming that the dollar of revenue five years from now is worth the same as a dollar of revenue today, which it's not. There's a reason why people do discounted cash flows is because there is a cost of capital and there's a time value of money. So I think you need to look at that. Secondly, I think everyone assumes that the gross margin from a SaaS product is always the same and it's not. I have in here, so you have to look at two things. What is your gross margin today? And then what is realistically going to be your gross margin a couple of years down the road? I think most entrepreneurs are optimistic about that. I've certainly seen you know, companies go from literally having a negative gross margin to having an 80% gross margin. Companies like Smartlane have a 92% gross margin. So, and yet others in this, like you know, Fast and CDN businesses lower. So you have to look at the gross margin dollars, not the revenue dollars. You have to discount the revenue kind of back. But without those things, I think so. Davis Cox number is very good. I, maybe this is going to be a good uh, follow up homework for me to come up with a number of what kind of a good CAC to LTV is if you do the LTV in a more sophisticated way. Mm-hmm. What
0: do you think the challenges are of, of placing such emphasis on CAC and LTV?
1: So the challenge of placing a lot of emphasis on just the revenue numbers is that you start to de-emphasize the product the differentiation of the product and the strategic positioning of the business. And sort of without disclosing non-public data, right? The we were very fortunate to be investors in an amazing SaaS company, Crux, which got acquired by Salesforce for about $800 million late last year. And if you look at their CAC to LTV numbers, they were perfectly fine. They were not exceptional. And if you just looked at the P&L of that business, you would not walk away with a impression like, oh, my God, I need to invest in this company or, oh, my God, this company is doing well. And what you would overlook is the fact that the functionality that the founders built and the engineering team built, given the move to the cloud, given the tremendous amount of data stored in the cloud and given how that data can be processed on AWS utilizing both the computer science techniques and network management techniques was actually becoming really really important and it was a strategic value that was completely not obvious by looking at the p l so by just overly focused on the p l they cocktail TV you end up overlooking the importance of product the importance of strategic positioning for the company in the market.
0: Alex, I was so looking forward to the show today. Uh, it really was such a pleasure to have you on. So thank you so much for joining me today.
1: Well, it's entirely my pleasure. It's uh, rare that I get a public opportunity to say that SaaS metrics are irrelevant, while in <laughs> fact I believe they do matter quite a bit. Just not when I make the uh, the investment decision. And as I'm throwing other sacrosanct terms out, on, you know, under the bus, I'm also happy to say that a bunch of the terms of venture capital are not important. So glad to have the opportunity to talk about those things, Harry.
0: And again, such a pleasure to have Alex on the show today, and incredible to hear his thesis investing with IDG, and again, a huge thanks to the team at Sapphire Ventures today for the introduction to Alex, without which the show would not have been possible. And if you love the show today and want to see more from me, then you can follow me on Snapchat at hstebbings with two b's, or Jason Lemkin on Twitter at Jason LK. We'd love to see you there. But before we leave you today, do not forget to check out Algolia. Now, Algolia is the robust search API that allows developers to integrate lightning-fast typo-tolerant search into their SaaS product, out of the box, Algolia offers developers a powerful platform for building great search experiences by owning the entire stack from engine to server. Algolia free up development teams to focus on adding intuitive search that delights users. This is perfect for existing search teams looking to spend less time on maintenance and infrastructure management and more time on user experience. And for smaller SaaS teams, Algolia is a great investment on top of your existing stack that requires no specialist engineers. And you can learn more about how Algolia helps SaaS scale search because now SaaS to podcast listeners can get one month free at algolia.com forward slash sasta with the coupon code sasta podcast as always i so appreciate all your support and i cannot wait to bring you friday's episode with daniel ruck ceo and founder at rocket trip